Good morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Last week I mentioned that the next few uh, sermons would be out of the actual words of some of the characters in the Christmas story. And today's, today's message is from verses uh, 68 through 79. And here's some bingo pictures for you while um, I give some backstory. There was this guy... Um, gentleman named Zechariah, you probably remember the story, but just in case you don't, his introduction in Scripture is just before Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary. Uh, Zechariah was a priest. He was on a service rotation in the temple, and, uh, and while this is going on, an angel appears to him, you know, scares him half to death, and, and tells him that his, his elderly and infertile wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. Now, despite uh, the source, you know, this glowing person appearing to him in the temple, Zechariah has the temerity to question and say, well, how is that even possible? So he's all skeptical. He questions God and, and the angel told him, okay, you're going to be mute until you, you know, no, he said, you're going to be mute until this child is born. And obviously because the angel said so, that happened. And Elizabeth became pregnant with the child who would become who? John the Baptist. Elizabeth's miracle pregnancy began about six months before Mary's, okay? And Mary was her niece. So Zechariah, uh, he, he hasn't been able, at the time that he's about to, that we're looking at here, he hasn't been able to speak for the better part of a year at least. And, and right before today's text, his son is born, and people are asking, uh, you know, what to name the child. And so uh, Elizabeth says, well, he's, he's supposed to be named John, and um, they just didn't buy that because they're like, no, 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 you, but that's not a family name, right? And so they went to Zechariah and like, Zechariah, can you, you know, tell us how? And he's, he's like, go get me a writing. He didn't say that. He, he, he gestures. They bring him a writing tablet. And then he writes down, his name is John. And as soon as that happens, he's able to speak again. Apparently, the first thing he does is praise God, okay? And at some point, either, either right then or soon after, Zechariah gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and he, he prophesies that God is going to accomplish some amazing things, both through his son and through God's son. And that prophecy tells us a lot about the Lord's faithfulness. And it reveals how God proves that he is faithful in several ways. So we're going to talk about that today um, because it's never a bad thing for the bride of Christ to be, uh, for us to be reminded that our Lord is faithful, and it ought to motivate us all the more to be faithful to Him. And so I think I skipped ahead once, I apologize. I may be missing a slide. That's all right. Okay, uh, let's bow. We'll invite the Lord in, into, this, uh, into this scenario as we teach through His Word. Father God, I just, I thank You first of all for the incredible blessing of Your Son, Jesus. It's my, probably my, um, my favorite time of year, and, and, and when I think about the incarnation and the incredible miracle it is, it just, it's mind-blowing. To me, it's even, it's even more amazing than your creation of the universe itself, the fact that you would write yourself into the story, as it's been said, that you would place your son in the, the, the womb of a virgin, that he would be both fully God and fully man. It's just beyond our comprehension. But we thank you for it. We thank you and we ask that today, Father, as, as you speak to your people uh, through your flawed servant, God, I, I, just, I pray that you will 
Help each one of us to receive what is planted. Let, let us take it humbly within our hearts and may it take root and bear fruit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so starting with verse 68, um, the first thing the Holy Spirit leads Zechariah to say is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And I want you to just pause there for a second. H have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit's, like the go-to for the Holy Spirit, whenever they, they are filled with Him, is that they almost immediately praise God. Like that's the first thing that comes out. Now you have to ask, well, why is it? Is it because God has a, an inflated ego? No, it's, it's due to His magnificence. God is absolutely praiseworthy. And I believe that when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the first things they recognize is the magnitude of God. It's kind of like when you, when you walk outside in the morning and you see a, just a glorious sunrise, or like probably most of you, you see sunsets more often. Um, and so, you know, when you see a beautiful sunset and it just, it just knocks you out of your socks, you're so impressed. I think that's kind of how we respond to God when the Holy Spirit really gets a hold of us. Zechariah continues, he says, For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us. Now there's a, there's a couple of important ways in this paragraph, I think, that God proves his faithfulness. And the first one is in providing, there we go. That was that missing slide that I couldn't find earlier. Kids, find the pictures real quick. Okay, the first way that he proves his faithfulness is in providing a way of salvation. In providing a way of salvation. I mentioned recently the Bible uses the word save or salvation uh, in at least a dozen different ways. But most of the time in the Old Testament, it's referring to deliverance from an earthly enemy. Okay? Now, even though, even though we're reading the book of Luke, which is in the New Testament portion of the Bible, I want you to bear in mind, the people of Israel were still under the Old Covenant until Jesus died, which was more than three decades after the Christmas story. We, we need to remember also that God had been far less uh, active in, in, in what we would consider a biblically conventional way for about the past 400 years, ever since Israel returned from slavery, from exile in Babylon. And so they had been through approximately four centuries of what's often referred to as the silent period between the Testaments. The last time God spoke in a way that was considered canonical was in the book of Malachi, and that was written to the exiles who returned from Jerusalem. You may remember the last word of that book, which is also the last book of the Old Testament, is the word curse. Interesting. Four centuries is a long time. That's about how long it's been since the pilgrims came over on the Mayflower. I mean, that's, that's a long time in the history of a nation. Multiple generations had come and gone w without seeing the fulfillment of, of all of these promises and prophecies that they had been hearing for years and years and years. And it's beginning at this point to affect the national mood, I think. The, the faithful still believe that God would, would eventually send His Christ, send his, his Messiah, His anointed one. But it had gotten pretty dark, spiritually speaking, in the nation of Israel. 
there was this puppet king. You guys know Herod. He was set up under the Roman regime, but the rulers at that time were capricious kind of in the way that they dealt with their power. There's a lot of cruelty. There's a lot of poverty. But faithful Jews were still waiting for God to send his salvation in the form of his anointed one. And Zechariah's words are interesting because he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And we'll get to the second part of that shortly, but the first part, it doesn't make sense to us unless we understand some Hebrew idioms. So a horn, whenever you see horn in Scripture, especially in any kind of apocalyptic literature or in prophecy, it is nearly always a symbol for power. So he's saying that God has raised up a power of salvation, and he did it through David's house, David's bloodline. I want us to talk a little bit about that because that is one of the ways in which God proves that he is also faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. The book of Hebrews points out that God's faithfulness is so perfect, he is able to swear by himself, by his own name. He made a powerful promise to David. If you would, please turn to 1 Chronicles. It's a real long section. I didn't make slides for it. I just would like you to read it right out of the word of God. So turn to 1 Chronicles, verse well, we'll get to the verse man. Go to, go to chapter 17, okay? And I'll give you kind of a, a few seconds to flip there in your Bibles. I, I didn't want to cut and paste everything in the slides, but there's so much in this passage that you may want to follow up with later that I think it's good for you to see it with your own eyes in the, in the Bible. Um, starting in the middle of verse 7 is where we're going to begin. Uh, through the prophet Nathan, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, now th this is interesting because God fulfills part of this following promise through David's son Solomon, who is a directly from David in that sense, but, but also part of this is going to be fulfilled through his direct descendant. He says, He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. Who is that? King Saul. Thank you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. 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 <laughs> you know, it's, it's a long time. Okay? Now, who's he talking about here? Jesus, thank you. Come on, everybody. Who's he talking about? In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Who was here last week? Most of you guys were here? Okay, some of you. All right. King David went in, sat before the Lord. You remember what humility looks like, right? And said, who am I, O Lord God? 
There's that phrase, who am I? That's humility. That's recognizing you're not deserving of this great blessing. Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And then David spends pretty much the whole rest of the chapter just praising God for his, his kindness and his faithfulness in spite of David's relative insignificance, you know? And Solomon continued that, that eternal reign that's promised to the son of David, but it wasn't until Christ himself that the reign was fully manifested. Now, all that said, it's kind, of, it's kind of amazing when you consider that God made this promise to David more than a thousand years before Christ was born. God is immensely faithful to agree that we're not even really able to fathom. We can't wrap our tiny little brains around it. And, and I want you to just consider the blessing that we have looking back on the incarnation of Christ. Because we can look back on it. They were looking forward to it. They didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. The Apostle Paul said that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We ought to feel incredibly blessed. Let's continue with Zechariah. Um, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That, too, is an amazing statement. The oath that God swore to Abraham could possibly refer to to that, that threefold promise, the initial promise that we looked at last week, remember in Genesis 12. But, but there's a reiteration that the Lord makes in Genesis 15. God swore a covenant with Abram that was one-sided. We'll talk about that some other time. I know we've talked about it before, but it was one-sided. It didn't depend on Abram's faithfulness at all, just God's. And that is a gracious reminder of God's character which is wonderfully consistent even though we are often not. Now, the Bible gives us multiple insights into God's character. And by this, I mean the traits or the qualities of him as a person, so to speak, right? There's a very oft-repeated quote in the book of Psalms. Uh, we see it in many different Psalms, but it probably sums up the character of God better than most. Uh, maybe the most... Uh, the, the most famous instance would be uh, the first verse of Psalm 136. I know you're familiar with this. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Right? You know, you remember this because it goes over and over and over. That's the refrain of that psalm. His love endures forever. God is good. And His love is always In more than one place, Scripture teaches us that God does not lie. It's, it's spelled out specifically in Titus 1.3, but we also learn in Hebrews, in fact, God can't lie. <laughs> and we know that, that God cannot be tempted by evil, according to James 1.13, which precludes the possibility of Him ever committing a sin, right? And then a few verses later, we learn He does not change. And it is this, this precious doctrine of God's immutability that helps us to experience the assurance of salvation. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to even consider if it were possible that God might decide that we're just not going to be saved by grace through faith anymore? Think about that for a second. 
What if God said, you know what, this just isn't cutting it. It's a scary thought. So we can praise the Lord that he is good, that he's always truthful, that he does not sin, and that he does not change. And it is extremely important that we recognize the truth in the last part of that paragraph. Okay, the, the, the stated purpose of God delivering his people, I'm talking about the paragraph of, of what Zechariah said, the stated purpose is in order that they may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness for all their days. Church, God is faithful to make his people holy. I'm pushing the wrong button, all right. It's making a laser. I don't know what's going on. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Yes, I just did. Okay, there it is. All right. God is faithful to make his people holy. This is perhaps uh, one of the most misunderstood uh, truths about Christianity in today's easy believism world. You know, it seems as though too many professing Christians are convinced that the reason Jesus died for them was in order that they might sin freely rather than allowing God's mercy and grace to be the motivation to live before Him with holiness and righteousness for all their days. Paul talks about that in, in, in where is it? Galatians 6, right? Wyatt would know. <laughs> Yeah, every epistle, but especially Galatians 6. He says, shall we go on sinning then so that grace may increase? By no means. What did I say? Did I? Oh, you're right. It's Romans 6. Oh. I love that you can call me out on that, though. I think it's great. Um, it's wonderful to be in it. Like, a lot of times I'll turn to Craig and be like, did I get that right? <laughs> I can do that with Wyatt sometimes too. It's, just, it's a powerful thing to think about the fact that Christ's death was not so that we would be able to sin. It was so that we would be able not to sin and not to suffer the penalty for sin because Christ paid it on the cross. Anyway, the Lord's desire for his people was expressed plainly all the way back when he gave them the law. He said, you be holy as I am holy. And then Jesus kind of said something very similar in Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, so don't be deceived. Instead, be convicted, friend. If you think grace gives you license to sin, think again. Now, even so, as 1 John chapter 2 begins, if anyone does sin, it says, God has provided an answer that saves. We'll get there shortly. Let's keep reading. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, now this, we're getting into the nitty-gritty here. So, uh, through Zechariah, okay, the Holy Spirit is prophesying about the future life of John the Baptist. He was the one, you remember, John even said this, he was the one who was to come and proclaim, make straight the way of the Lord, right? He's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that seven centuries before. So his purpose, John's purpose in preparing God's people for Christ's ministry was that they might receive knowledge of salvation. That's what it says. Knowledge of salvation. And that salvation is theirs through God mercifully forgiving their sins. 
forgiving His people. Sometimes the Old and New Testaments are contrasted. You ever notice this? They're pitted against each other in such a way it seems like God has changed how He receives people. But the Bible teaches us all, all since the beginning, he has, he has accepted people by faith. And forgiveness is a part of that acceptance because nobody's perfect. Can I get an amen? <laughs> you know, there's this beautiful passage in Micah 7. I know it's one of Everett's favorites. Um, it, and it's the prophet asks, who, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Guys, this is in the Old Testament. Don't tell me God has changed. Years, centuries before Christ came, God's faithfulness was shown to the patriarchs of the faith and it was shown to the prophets before, you know, just like Zechariah alluded it. You know, how awesome is that? God is, he's given us markers, road signs all throughout history of what he's doing. In case you're not aware, the means by which God forgives us is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, his son. God the Father punished God the Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf so that His blood paid the price for our sin. And then God raised Him from the dead as proof that He is exactly who He claimed to be, that He is the Messiah, and that God's promise has been fulfilled because God is faithful. So all who come to Him in faith, all who come to to faith in Christ, they receive that forgiveness which came to us because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So it's also because of God's tender mercy. Isn't that a wonderful expression? What do you think of when you hear tender mercy? I I, I think of of a, a young mother with her newborn baby. That's what I think of. In God's tender mercy, he sent Jesus to make his people holy by illuminating the darkness. You know, 400 years of relative silence and God's people probably felt pretty defeated, you know, pretty broken, like they were just kind of sitting in the dark. And in the first few verses of John's gospel, referring to Jesus Christ, who, who is the word became flesh, We read, in him was life, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember, this is the world Jesus came into. is a world where religious people had taken God's precepts and then added to, to that hundreds of their own laws, and then they treated their laws as equal or greater than God's actual law. You know, it was, it was rife with hypocrisy and they, they covered up the truth with traditions, which happens often in the history of the church. You know, you go back and look through the history of Christendom and tradition has supplanted God's word in so many places and it's sad. Many people couldn't see what was really the will and the plan of God until the light came and showed them. 
Christ is the light that reveals the true character of the triune God. So he did that for God's people, and then he showed them the way of peace. That's such a deep word. Peace. Don't you love the idea of peace? But it's not, I don't think he's talking about external peace. What did Jesus say? He said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword, right? So what is this peace among men? The most important way of peace that Jesus reveals is that we can stop being God's enemies and be reconciled to him through the cross of Christ. The blood that was shed on that horrible torture device is the ticket to our forever peace with God. It's received through faith. So knowledge that God has effectively provided eternal salvation for you makes it a lot easier to live with the lack of peace in the present, doesn't it? At least that lack of external peace. It gives us internal peace. That's what, that's what the Word made flesh means to us. It means peace with God, which leads to peace within ourselves. And that can extend to peace with those around us. Okay, We can live in the way of peace because of Christ. And all of this, friends, is due to the faithfulness of God. So I want to end with this, friends. Does knowledge of his faithfulness lead you to love him more? And if not, why not? You know, those of you who are married understand this, don't you? I mean, just as your spouse's fidelity ought to encourage yours, so should God's faithfulness inspire us to be faithful to Him in our own lives. Amen? Shouldn't we? But it has to start somewhere. You know, if if you believe what Jesus did for you, but you've never repented of your sins, you've never confessed Christ and sought to be obedient through baptism, then that needs to be your first step. You know, and I want to to explain, you don't have to wait until you're older or until you you think you might better understand what you're doing. God rewards obedient faith. You you don't have to to get your life straightened out first. You know, that that makes no sense. This is how God straightens us out. You don't have to understand Christianity perfectly before you can obey. That's part of the process of growth. And guess what? I don't understand it perfectly. I want to just remind you, your preacher just said that, okay? Okay. I don't understand the Word of God perfectly, but I know enough to be saved, and I think you do too. So your choice this morning is, what do I do with this information? Just do it. Respond to God's faithfulness. Just do it. You have a chance right now during the invitation.